Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. Roads are long. There are lots of forks in them, and you just never know. My guest today has observed. He knows wherever he speaks. Jason Haheim, Gustavus class of 2001, graduated magna cum laude in Phi Beta Kappa with a double major in honors music and physics. He went on to earn a master's degree in electrical engineering from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and from there landed a position with Nano Inc., a Chicago nanotechnology firm. Music, though, remained part of Jason's life, and eventually, Fork in the Road, became his career. Between 2004 and 2013, he was, successively, the assistant and then principal timpanist for the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, co-principal timpanist for the Peoria Symphony Orchestra, and principal timpanist of the Southwest Michigan Symphony Orchestra. Then in 2013 came an incredible fork on the road when Jason's decade of playing, practicing, and auditioning won him his current position as principal timpanist for the world-renowned Metropolitan Opera Orchestra in New York. As this suggests, Jason's story is not only interesting, but also illustrative how an education in the liberal arts at Gustavus equips one for the long fork-filled road ahead. And I'm delighted he can join me to talk about his own journey and how he has navigated it. So welcome, Jason. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much, Greg. It's great to be here. Uh, my pleasure, and thank you for joining. You're joining us, we should note, from uh, Seoul, South Korea. Which is, Indeed. Uh, yeah. I mean, this, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, it's it, it's an interesting time to be doing this, right? And I, I was thinking about, like, as you were reading that intro, I, I was thinking about, oh, it has been a long road. <laughs> there have been some forks in there. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, wow. we're going to get into this a lot, I'm sure, but what, what an amazing time to be um, – reflecting on on careers and crafts and decisions yes. and and forks um i i should i should confess that uh i am in the middle myself of like launching my own website and and my own podcast oh wow and, congratulations and it's it's hard because you know as you were mentioning before you hit record there that you know you've been doing a number of these and it's kind of hard to know how to frame them sometimes right like sometimes you want content that's just like evergreen right but then right. there's other times where it's like well okay but this idea or this kind of frame of mind we're in or this conversation is very much you know in this moment we're living through yes and i feel like you know right now is is definitely part of that latter frame a absolutely and i'm you know speaking as a historian the past is with us and the present you can't understand the present without the past so yeah i'm i'm yeah we we're, we're going to be talking about the moment absolutely <laughs> um, and you're in so you're in seoul there tell us what are you doing there first of all fair question there? yeah okay so um it, it'll take a minute to unpack this it's also interesting for me because like a lot of the um, you know, I, I, since I've been at the Met, I've been fortunate to do a number of different podcasts like this, mm -hmm. um, you know, talking about, you know, story, different forks in the road and everything. This one I, I'm excited about because I kind of get to go a little bit in reverse. And what I mean by that is so right now I'm, I'm sitting in a Airbnb in Seoul, South Korea, uh, the, <laughs> the Hongdae neighborhood of Seoul. Um, and I'm here because, you know, the Metropolitan Opera. Um, for indefinitely furloughed our orchestra without pay yeah, starting terrible. April 1st. And so, you know, the, the 10 plus months of this pandemic so far 
have been, you know, just just for me personally, the most destabilizing time in my entire life. I mean, I, you know, I, I was living with my girlfriend on the Upper West Side of New York. You know, we had a, we had a cool apartment that we liked. Um, you know, we were, we were doing our stuff, seeing friends in New York, and, and of course, like that's all just completely evaporated. We yeah. we gave up our apartment. We put all our stuff in a storage no, unit, no, and no, now we're, we're essentially just like pandemic nomads, right? Like yeah. indefinitely. And and the point of that is not like oh poor Jason. No, it's like I, the point is that like I actually have it pretty good compared to most other people in the performing arts. Wow. Right. Like it is it is just impossible to overstate what an absolutely devastating tsunami this has been for the entire performing arts world in the United States. And I'll tell you, this scares the hell out of me because um, without the arts, we're, we're doomed as far as I'm concerned. And I would include that the culinary arts as well. I mean, with the mm -hmm. devastation to that industry, um, you're, you're putting it in terms that are, you know, stark. And, and I appreciate that. Um, and I'm sorry about, I mean, it, you know, I've read about orchestra members, you know, not only there, but, you know, without pay. And so, so somehow this has to do with your, your, your trip to Korea. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. Because, we, you know, we were, we basically um, decamped from New York City proper, um, found, a, you know, an affordable place to rent in the Catskills. So, the you know, the mountains a couple hours north of New York City for yeah. kind of the late spring and summer and early fall, where we could you know, just hang out and avoid the virus. And then I got incredibly fortunate that, you know, a friend of mine who is the principal percussionist in the Soul Philharmonic um, asked if I wanted to come play a few months of guest principal timpani. Wow. And I said, yeah, absolutely. That, that'd that be fantastic. <laughs> um, you know, the it almost goes without saying, but, you know, the the South Korean government's approach to managing the pandemic is, um, well, I should just say like competent and normal. <laughs> the rest of the world has been such a, a shameful debacle, which means that, you know, in the fall, think life was basically proceeding normally here in oh, Seoul. And so amazing. we were able to, you know, have a couple concerts. And, and so that, that's why I'm here. Were people, were people um, socially distancing at those concerts or how did, how did it work? Yeah. And, and so, so definitely, you know, there's all the same different, um, you know, public health precautions. I haven't right. seen it. Well, even, even in New York city, right. The, the epicenter of the early pandemic, um, while, you know, while we were back there packing things up in our apartment, and everything, you know, a lot of people were wearing masks, but not all like sizable percentages were still totally not doing this. Um, by contrast here in, in Seoul, I have literally not seen a single person. <laughs> so different. So it amazing. is just so so vastly different. Yeah, yeah. I and, was. Go uh, no, go ahead. Well, and and so and then, you know, the concerts when they were happening, you know, people were were spaced out in the concert hall, and then they got to a point where, you know, rates rose ever so slightly. You know, which for South Korea it was it was a big deal, and they wanted to take it seriously. You look at that rise on the same graph next to anything in the United States, you can't even see it. You know, it's just like imperceptible. It's, just, it's so, 
It's so hard to comprehend the incompetence and the, we'll, we'll you know, leave it at that, I guess, but yeah. it's all, you're reminding me that uh, I mentioned before we started recording, I had, I had recorded with a, a, another alum uh, who happens to be living in Hong Kong. And she was saying the same thing about the masks and that the only people <laughs> she sees not wearing them are, uh, you know, foreigners. Right. Uh, and they're immediately, you know, scolded, corrected, shunned, all of the above. So, um, oh, man. Well, I'm glad it was South Korea that 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 made, made you the offer that that worked out nicely for that for that reason alone. Um, good. You didn't have to sacrifice your health in addition to giving up your apartment. Everything yeah. Else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what what's the con? I mean, are you performing weekly there? How does it work? Well, so what ended up happening, you know, we, we got here, we had to, uh, you know, quarantine for 14 days in this in this facility and then, right. um, you know, could begin rehearsals just as a as a sort of matter of slightly poor timing. That was when the rates here were rising, like I said, ever so slightly. So we got to play a couple concerts and then some of the other ones got canceled. Okay. So um but I ended up writing this this uh, big blog post about the experience um, because what, what it ended up being was, you know, we were playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony right around mm. Christmas. This is the you know, famous Ode to Joy, yeah. um, and uh, which is also one of the sort of most iconic timpani parts in the entire repertoire. Oh, wow. That's good. And I was kind of getting thrown back into that situation after – not having access to any timpani for nine months. <laughs> and and this is this is an aspect of the pandemic that like even a lot of musicians don't totally think about this, but it's just very different for timpanists and percussionists, right? Like we're the most sort of institutionally gear bound of musicians. Yes. Right. We have rooms full of equipment and and you need access to those to do your thing, you know, to, to practice right. your craft. Um, my, my timpani would just literally not even fit into a New York City apartment. Like it wouldn't <laughs> fit through the front door. And so what that meant was when Lincoln Center shut down on March 12th, that foreclosed any ability for me to keep playing anything. Couldn't even practice, you know. Um, and so that that was a real uh, shocking, illuminating scary like experience to fly halfway around the world and try to like reboot this engine that had been sitting you know not, not just idle but completely cold for nine right. months I, I i have to i had not thought of that aspect uh, at all even even preparing for this conversation with you and yeah that must have been uh, i don't know <laughs> scary uh you know <laughs> what the words would would be but you did it obviously it worked did it. Uh, yeah super super glad to have had that good. experience um I mean, and if for no other reason, you know, like, I'll be honest, Greg, like I was reticent to even write that blog post because so many other performing artists are suffering yes. so much worse than I am right now, yes, right? right? Like I have this opportunity. It, at some point in mid-December, I realized I was one of like a countable handful of timpanists worldwide that were able to perform at that time. Yeah, I wanted to ask, I mean, maybe, well, it's okay, I'll ask it right here. I was curious about that, but there aren't that many, I mean, there aren't that many tiffinous positions, are there? Oh, I mean, right. I mean, it just, right. uh, you know, in, in even in the before times, there's right. not that many yeah. of us. But exactly. with, you know, with the pandemic and, you know, virtually every orchestra and opera house being various degrees of shutdown, furloughed, whatever, 
you know, I, I was one of the very, very few people with the opportunity to do this. And so I kind of, you know, I felt bad sort of like sure. crowing about my own good fortune. But but on the other hand, I mean, a, a handful of my friends, especially musician friends said, you know, there are going to be a lot of people who are confronting this same problem of like having been away from it for so long and then sort of being terrified by the atmospheric reentry process. You know, yeah. like we're, we're just like floating out in space and at some point – we're going to have to get back and, and play with people. It's, it's you know, it's, it's yeah. going to happen eventually. Right. And then when yeah, that happens, it's like, uh, how are we going to adjust and adapt? To yeah. That? You, so, you, you now know you can. And this is, um, <laughs> I'm just thinking too, even, even if we ever get back into office buildings, right, turning them back on, so to speak, the air, air systems. But, you know, you, you're, is it, you, you just use a sort of space metaphor. But, you know, it's another fork in the road, right, that, that, kind of came your way, you were ready for it, and, and there you are. Had you been to Korea before, South Korea? I had for one week. I did um, a guest principal week here back in, I think it was 2017. It's, it's honestly hard to remember because now everything in the before times is like this weird yes. telescoped time frame. Yeah. No, it could have been 10 bad. years ago, it could have been three, but yes. I think it was 2017. What uh, Are there things you really enjoy about about uh, South Korea or Seoul in particular compared oh, yeah. to New York? It's an awesome city. I mean, yeah, and again, to be fair, like we we haven't gotten to experience it quite the same way we would have in, you know, the before times. A lot of the, like, you know, they are taking um, sensible public health precautions. So, you know, you, you can't have big groups in restaurants. You know, the bars are essentially mostly closed. Um, you, the museums are, are also shut down. So, like, there's a lot of the stuff that I was – hoping to be able to see that, you know, we haven't been able to, but, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully find more time in the after times to do so. Yeah. I want, boy, one day, both Kate and my wife, Kate and I want to go there. We had a good friend from, uh, no, she was from Seoul, but in graduate school at Boston university, uh, uh, we, we knew her, she was studying geography and then had to go back to Korea. And okay, she came back here a few times, but we always have wanted to go to South Korea and Seoul in particular, it sounds great. You know, by the way, is it, it, this reminds me though, sort of a sad note or a disturbing note. Is it in um, South Korea where some young musicians have been uh, taking their own lives? Have I got that right? I think I read something. I can't remember if it's South, maybe Japan, somewhere. Boy, um, I'm trying to, I mean, artists, young artists. I don't know if they were all musicians, but um, just saw something about that. Anyway, you know, again, the, the times we live in, right? What, it is. Happen? Well, and, and maybe maybe even more indicative is, is that like, I'm sure that's true and I'm sure that's happening. But when you try to consider the amount of news that's happened in the last right. 10 months, yes. like, right. like, for instance, just the other day, I was I was talking with my friends. I was like, oh, hey, did you read that, you know, that new New York Times blockbuster report about how the Justice Department just about had a coup on New Year's yes. Eve? And they're like, what? We didn't even see that. And I'm like, this was like the most epic thing. Like in any yeah. other set of, you know, four years, this would have been a defining story of the entire administration. Exactly. And, and it just yeah. completely flew under the radar. It's true. It's so true. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm, I'm glad you're there and with your girlfriend. I'm glad. What is her name? Her name is Talia. Talia. Did she go to Gustavus also or not? She did not. No. Uh, we actually met when we were freelancing um, both in some of these orchestras in central Illinois. Huh. Um, and she's a cellist. And oh, so oh, my wife loves cello. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah she loves the cello. Well, so let, you mentioned Gustavus. Let's go back in time a bit. Um, you graduated in 2001. And let's start. Just tell us a little bit about where you grew up. First yeah, I grew up in Chaska, Minnesota. So this oh, is, sure. uh, yeah. you know, southwest of the Twin Cities. Um, uh -huh. 
you'll you know essentially drive right by it if you're heading north from campus up on 169 and uh-huh. you'll uh, pass it kind of there on the left but yeah you know it, it was it was a really um very like standard sort of suburban upbringing that you know a lot of minnesotans would uh kind of recognize and and you know i gotta be honest like it has been especially in these last 10 months has been really this would have been a very different podcast a year ago. Let me put it that way. Sure. Right. Like it's been really, really interesting to reflect on my, you know, time growing up in a Minnesota suburb and then going to Gustavus and, and then all of the, the routes and forks and everything you mentioned, you know, since then. And I don't know, like a, a couple of touchstones from that, I guess would be that, you know, on the one hand, I, I have a, much different view, I think, of my my home, that community, kind of where I grew up, than than I did at the time. Sure. You know, so, so that's that's kind of touchstone number one. Touchstone number two would be um, the the way I think about this all now, like our our lives, and especially in the performing arts, it it is just like this perpetual instability now. You know, Um, and, you know, I I would say probably back in May, I was doing some, you know, music focused master classes, Zoom classes, as everyone's been doing. And um, one of my colleagues asked me, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, so (laughs) how are things going at the Met? And I was like, well, (laughs) not not great. (laughs) Again, the, you know, unlike most of the other orchestras in the country and opera companies, you know, where where their managements had some basic sense of compassion um, yeah. for their for their employees and, and their workers and their artists, um, we just got completely cut off, like furloughed, yeah, no pay, just done. Yeah, as you said, since April, I mean, right? Since, since April. April. Yeah, yeah. In, you know, in and, the know, front page news, in the arts section of the New York Times, I remember reading it well. It's shocking, absolutely it shocking. It, it's shocking, it, but it's also like this kind of punctuation on this larger story, right? Because, yeah. you know, what I was trying to – advise these young musicians and then you know in a way how this relates back to kind of thinking about myself at like 16 in, in chaska and and the way the arts fit into all of this is that you know what i said was if the principal timpanist of the metropolitan opera can be facing definitely well over a year possibly two years or more of unemployment we have to recognize that the performing arts in the United States are just a fundamentally unstable field. Right. They're, they're in deep, deep crisis. It's, yeah. it's deep crisis. And, and again, this is not, this is not a rant. This is not, you know, um, a, a sort of gnashing of teeth moment. It's just like, I've been in this position since I've been at the Met of getting to teach a lot. And a lot of that has involved me going back to try to re-inhabit my mindset from 16, 17, 18, you know, being, being a, a sort of music interested kid and looking at schools maybe, or like, Oh, you know, liberal arts, or do I want to go to a conservatory or any of that? And then, and then imagining myself at 18, 19, 20, 21, and, and trying to figure out like grad schools and all of that. And, and, you know, the assumptions I was working with at the time versus kind of what I understand now. And, I mean, man, it, it's just, it is really wild. When, when I just framed it to myself that simply, yeah, principal tempest in that, two years unemployed, yeah. it is a really unstable field. And it says something really fundamental about our 
our culture and, and our society and like what, what we actually value. We, you know, absolutely. <laughs> let me put it this way. I, when growing up in Minnesota, right? I, I think the state of Minnesota does a lot to, you know, actually value the arts. It, it right. puts priority on them. Yes. Um, arts education, you, you know, diff, different opportunities with youth orchestras and like MMEA. And, you know, you get a different experience of that than you would in a lot of other states. Um, what that did, though, is it, I think, cultivated in me this idea that it, there was this kind of like primacy and permanence to it. It right. doesn't, in fact, exist. That like. <laughs> You know, I, I got, I got, you know, quote unquote, to the top of the mountain and realized that it was incredibly fragile. Yeah. And yeah, that's, a, that's a profound realization, right? I mean, that's yeah. exactly, that's a good way to put it. It's true about Minnesota. It's one of the things I love about Minnesota, not a native, grew up in the burbs of Chicago, but I'm um, absolutely true. And yet, right, here was the orchestra. We, we my wife Kate and I lived not far from it, you know, on strike not that long ago, right? Yeah. I mean, some of the same issues. Um, but I couldn't agree more with you. And I will rant. I'm happy to rant. I certainly <laughs> rant. Um, it's an it's an outrage. You know, it's it's an outrage. And it says a lot about a culture, a civilization that we, you know, don't value the arts. So by value, or I put put our money where 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 at least a lot of us think it should be. It's it's frustrating. Um, it actually makes me sometimes long for the days of the robber barons when they were willing to fund you know orchestras and or at least help fund. Well, but, and um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned well, that. I was just in a conversation, different podcast about this recently, but we we were talking about. I mean, we we can we can focus on the performing arts. We can focus on music. We can even focus on the Met. But this is a much broader problem, oh, right? No, this, right? This affects right. the entire nonprofit sector. Right. And, and it's almost quaint to think about when Congress passed the, you know, the income tax, the, the, this, this act in yes. 1913. Right. That would, you're right. It was just the assumption. It was like, well, yeah, we've got all these, you know, rich one percenters of their times, the robber barons, the Carnegie's, the Rockefellers, whatever, they're going to fund this stuff. Right. It's in the public good. They're just going to do it because this matters yeah. for society. Yeah. And yeah, we're, yeah. I mean, like it just seems naive in retrospect. It does. It's um, it's a profound tragedy. I hope. I like to believe we will get through it. Um, you know, we got through. We we weren't there, but in 1918. But you know, this isn't 1918. It's a different time. We'll see. I just, boy, fingers crossed. Um, we're frequent. You know, we love the Minnesota Orchestra here, and we can walk to it, and uh, the Dakota Jazz Club, and all these places are are trying, you know, it's not the same, obviously, and, and revenue is down. I mean, that's just, you know, it is a business, right? I mean, it is, you know, it's a, I mean, money is involved. So I, yeah, I feel for you and all the artists, I really do. And I wish, this is when I wish I were in charge and had unlimited funds. <laughs> yeah. To do this. Because it's museums, it's, it's everything, right? It's everything. It's just, yeah. Theater. The, um, so, you know, you said something and you were maybe kind of touching on this, but I want to circle back to it just, just quickly or briefly. And that is you were making these two, you know, you were speaking about these two touchstones and, um, you said the first touchstone is you, you, you've sort of rethought, I don't know if you meant where you grew up or your, you know, Minnesota, but can you say a little bit more about that? What, what you mean by that or what you mean? Yeah, by yeah, that? absolutely. Well, okay. So, so if, if this, this kind of re-examination of, of like my 16 year old self looking at the arts in, you know, sort of Minnesota has, has now kind of come to understand 
<clears throat> that it is fragile and, and there's this okay. fundamental instability. And, and in fact, I mean, one of the things that I am so thankful for is that I, I have a pretty versatile skill set, right? You know, I, I worked in nanotech for 10 years. Like for me, if the Metropolitan Opera completely implodes, it, it's not the end of the world. Like I, I will find other things to do. <clears throat> and it, it just the, the fact of the matter is that like a lot of my colleagues have had a much more narrow vocational training. Yes. And and that I, I'm not looking at this from a, from now the vantage point of 2021, like a 21st century kind of reality. I'm not certain that that is well, certainly not the only way. And I'm not even certain it's the best way to proceed with this now. You know, so so to a certain extent, since that time of, of sort of my teenage years, I've only um, kind of doubled down on the importance of how a liberal arts approach to this. And, yes. you know, not, not only it, it, it's not just that it like kind of checks the boxes of, you know, Gustavus's great marketing materials, right? And like, oh, it's a fulfilling right. life and all this stuff. Like it is, it 100% is. Um, and that that really is the most important part. But at a pragmatic level too, I mean, it helps prepare for a century that is probably going to be really destabilizing, like continuously, yes. you know. You are, um, you are, Making me smile, um, despite the context, but and I'm will be quoting you and citing you to um, students. I said we start teaching again. On, I'll be doing it online on Monday because, you know, for all for all the dismay, understandable dismay of students at Gustavus and elsewhere about not being able to have all classes in person and or missing graduation. Wow, what I mean, you know, what a time to learn about resilience, learn how to cope. Right, I mean. That is also important in life, even without a pandemic, right? It's important. Oh, yeah. um, but I think you just made a very, you know, very strong case for the for the liberal arts. We can come back to that. So well, you I, were, I, I, yeah. That, so so basically, that 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 trajectory. Then I mean, there's there's one way if if you kind of look at it from you know time equals zero at like the age of eighteen going forward or whatever. It was it was you know young Jason doing these things with forks in the road. Now I look back and I'm like, oh. Sure. What what I was doing was also like weathering these That's different right. phases of increasingly volatile instability. That's because right. one of the things I haven't really talked about much before is that, yeah, I was working at this nanotech company in Chicago for 10 years, but it was a startup company and startups are notoriously unstable, right? right. <laughs> like, you know, most, most of them don't last more than two or three years. It's like <laughs> restaurants in New York, right? It's right. like right. the burnout rate is really high. And, and, you know, so from, from really from the age of 24 onward, I never had a feeling of stability. You know, I like, I think about my parents, right. And, and this is, this is, I know yes. like a very, a very, um, almost common trope now talking about like, oh, okay, boomer. But it's just true that like the baby <laughs> boomer generation had an experience of, you know, growing up and, and sort of career lifespan that yes. was almost radically stable compared right. to what I've experienced and certainly the generation coming after me. All, all true. And I'm part of that. I'm a boomer. And, uh, you know, I'd be, I, my first real job, right. was Gustavus 30, however, in 1986. And here I am. Yeah. Um, and that I'm in that way, as I can hear my father saying a dinosaur or a fossil, <laughs> meaning, oh, I'm, I'm, it, 
it's forget it. That's not the world anymore. And even for academics now, it's not the world, right? I mean, it's a well, yeah, and it, isn't that wild, right? Because I, yeah. I remember so vividly this conversation I had with um, what, one of my best friends from Gustavus, a, a guy I graduated with, the same class of 2001, uh, Tim Andine. He's a physics major, went on, got his uh, PhD in physics. He was part of the experiment at the Large Hadron Collider that like oh, discovered yeah. the Higgs particle. Um, so he, wow. he's a professor at UT Austin now. But it was actually his couch that I was crashing on in New York when I won the Met audition. Oh my God. <laughs> and the morning after, um, you know, I'll admit I was a little hungover because we celebrated that night. <laughs> and, um, but we were getting coffee and he was just like, man, like you made it. Like there is nothing more secure or stable in the performing arts than a 10 year job with the Metropolitan yeah. Opera. Like this yeah. is the rock. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah. I, just, I, I remember that so clearly now. And, and now it, we're laughing. Yeah, you've discovered. Well, well, you know, I mean, without the pan, I don't know, even with even without the pandemic, right? There would be instability associated with the arts, but not to this extent. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and so that that kind of points to that other major touchstone I was thinking of. Like th there were a couple classes I had that that were really. Um, they left a really deep imprint on me. It was my freshman year. I was so I was in curriculum two, uh -huh. and it was um, both the individual and morality, and the individual and society. Yes, and I don't know if both of those courses are taught exactly the same way or same titles or whatever, same reading list. But um, Chris Gilbert taught both of them. And, Political science prof. Yeah. Yep. And and a couple of the books that that really kind of lodged in my brain were. Um, Mary Midgley's Can't We Make Moral Judgments? And um, then also the the Bella classic Habits of the Heart. Oh, yeah. Who, I think he spoke at Gustavus, too. That, that I'm sure. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure he did. And, and Robert Bella, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it was interesting because it was, I mean, it was the first time I had been exposed to any of those ideas. But wow. I mean, I, I can think about like, you know, some of the like essays and, you know, papers I was writing for that. And they were, you know, they were of course, crude. <laughs> they, they were what, you know, like a, a 19 year old was going to crank out. But, um, but when I think back about that, I'm like, you, you know, those really pointed toward this trajectory of what we were going to collectively experience yes. over the next like 24 years. Yeah, and you, and just, you know, for anyone who hasn't encountered these books, I mean, the Midgley book is, is basically saying like, there's a real problem with complete moral relativism and like almost in a way that like shame can have a helpful place because it's guardrails on society that keep us from tipping into fascism. Right. Well, and okay. Okay. Yeah, except, yeah, except we've learned now shame doesn't, 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 that's a whole nother conversation. We can yeah. And, and then oh you think God. about like how, how that book relates to like the rise of social media and all of, I mean, it's just, so, so that was, that was a really kind of formative, um, thought environment back then but then but then the bella book you know was famously sort of this exploration of the contours of american individualism and right. you know the, the sort of upsides but then some of the other real real downsides is that the bowl was it called bowling alone bowling alone or something like that i can't remember anyway yeah. but his famous yeah we're all out we're about how we're not part of groups or communities yeah 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 i mean and it, it's like <clears throat> The pandemic in the United States could not have been a more perfect case study of his Seriously. ideas. Yeah, right. And, and, and I mean, that's it's just one of these things where I, I always think, like, for for anyone who 
you know, uh, and, and I was one of them, right? Like different times sitting in, in classes at Gustavus being like, oh, I don't, you know, is this relevant? Like, <laughs> is this going to be practical? Like, oh, man, <laughs> it, it, may, it might take 20 years for it to, to exactly. really think in how much it's going to be relevant. But right. No, that's it. But that's a beautiful, I mean, speaking here as a professor and also thinking about my own self as a student, that is such, that is so true. Um, I like you, I can, I can pinpoint moments and even in high school, right? Professor or teachers, then I guess we can call them professors, um, you know, who had such an impact on me to now, right? To this day, especially now in, um, I had, I had a version in high school, uh, of a curriculum too. I didn't know it at the time. If I always say, if only I'd done all the reading, my God. <laughs> I know, I know. So prepared. <laughs> but, you know, talk more, let's talk a little bit more about Gustavus. So why Gustavus? What brought you? And, you know, first, by the way, did you, did you go to Chan? Where'd you, where'd you go to high school? Was it Chan? Oh, I went to Chaska High School. Chaska. Because I know, um, you didn't know Jim Swearingen, did you? He's at Chan. He was, in, does, um, a friend, he does, he works with performing arts, you know, theater, and he sent some students to Gustavus. Probably, I don't I'm know if sure. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know that name, but I mean, the okay. thing is, that back in my day, <laughs> there was not a Chan Hassan High School. It was just oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. So Jim maybe came later. He's a great guy, but a great, great performing arts uh, teacher, coordinator, director, all of you above. Anyway, so why Gustavus? I mean, is it the old story? I'm kind of kidding here, where you know, so many people when my great great grandfather went, or what? What? What made you consider Gustavus and then ultimately choose it? Yeah, um, it was a comparatively simple decision process. I mean, I kind of I, I I had two general ideas that I was considering. I was either like I want to do like a smaller college liberal artsy thing, or I want to do like a you know bigger school type environment. But I definitely know I want to do some version of both physics and music. I don't know how this is going to play out yet. Um, I certainly had no idea I would be considering music professionally. I just knew that I really wanted that to be a part of my college experience. These, were these things, were these things you'd already studied in, in high school, I assume? Well, I, yeah, I mean, my dad taught high school physics, so I had that okay. as an influence from, you know, early years. Uh -huh. And, um, and, you know, and then I had some of these kind of like ignition experiences in high school surrounding music and, and percussion and everything else. And you know, I've been playing in the greater Twin Cities Youth Symphony. And so I knew I wanted to keep having that as part of my life. And ultimately, it really came down to a decision between Gustavus and Northwestern. And oh, here's wow. the funny thing, like Northwestern had a five-year degree that would have let me do a double major in you know physics and, and music. The, the physics part of it would have been basically like through the school of engineering and um, you know, and and so there were there were different requirements, and that's why it was a five year degree, and you know all that kind of thing. Um, but the funny thing is, I didn't get into the music school. <laughs> like, oh, I wasn't good enough. Right? <laughs> and, and, and and the crazy thing is, like, so back then, I mean, North, Northwestern, uh, even at the time, had like a very uh, you know a pretty prestigious percussion program that had been kind of launched by one of the you know kind of a legend in in our field, Michael Burrett. Um, and Michael Bird eventually went on to teach at Eastman. So he now runs the, the percussion program at Eastman. Well, funny thing, I was just up at Eastman giving a master class in the fall of 2019. <laughs> um, and it was just lovely because, you know, I did my thing. We, we got to hang out. We got dinner and we were chatting. I was like, Mike, do you remember in like 
you know, the, <laughs> the fall of 1996, some twerpy blonde kid showed up and didn't play very well and you didn't let him into Northwestern. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> you made the right call, you know, and, and priceless moment. Oh yeah. yeah. I made the right call. And you're, you're honest enough. Oh, that's great. I love that story. It's fantastic. But the, but the um, thing is, honestly, I mean, I, I was still kind of gravitating toward Gustavus anyway, just because like there was, there was just something about that. Um, you know, sort of a more intimate campus environment. Yes, really, really appealed to me. Everyone does that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And and I mean, it once I sort of had this bigger decision clarified about like the the sort of larger versus smaller school experience. Well, then just kind of stacking up the what Gustavus was offering in terms of physics and music. I mean, kind of compared to its peers, St. <clears throat> Olaf, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, oh yeah, this is a no brainer. You know, like it's, the, um, it's, it's, I mean, we have one of the best, maybe the best physics department in a, of a small uh, liberal arts class. It's fantastic. I mean, it's absolutely terrific. Oh, and yeah. I, I hope, music, I hope Chuck, Paul, Tom, Steve, I hope you guys get to hear this. Can't say enough good things about those guys. Yeah, they will. Uh, the Steve Mellema, Paul Saulnier, Chuck Niederreiter. Yeah, it's just a fabulous physics department. Long, long fabulous. And then the music program, my God, the performing arts, the arts in general. When I, um, you'll appreciate this because I, I used to say, and I was only half joking when I first came to Gustavus and, you know, kind of young assistant professor, first an instructor. And, in you know, wow, we should be the Juilliard of the Midwest. I mean, the talent, <laughs> I would think of the musical talent, the talent on stage. I just, I couldn't, I, the artists and faculty artists, student artists, you know, painting, drawing, sculpting, you name it. So it's really, really true. Uh, and there is something about the environment. I did not attend a liberal arts college, you know, Boston University, huge, maybe still the largest private university in the country. And then Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, big state school. But um, there is that intimacy and it's true. It, it, for, for a time for me, it became a little suffocating. I'm a city guy, uh, even though I grew up in the burbs. But, you know, it's it's powerful. It's real. And almost everybody I have interviewed <laughs> for this podcast has referenced that somehow. Uh, especially well, and it's, it's something you end up missing too, right? I mean, like I, uh, it's it's funny because that that path from a you know small Minnesota suburb, like like so. Ch I mean, back in the early '80s, like Chaska was much more a rural suburb it, it right. didn't it, it had not yeah. yet become sort of homogenized with a you know ruby tuesday on every corner kind of right thing. right <laughs> and yeah and it was just like farm fields and forests and paths and i was like biking around with my friends and all that um you know so it, it kind of went from this very like rural bucolic almost existence and then and then had like the you know kind of smaller campus experience at gustavus but then i went to you know do my grad school at uc santa barbara and then chicago and then manhattan so it's been like this kind of continuous um i don't even want to use the, the term upgrade but just a, an expansion yeah. of that sort of like size of environment that's true um, and, and now soul which is you know, now soul. yeah <laughs> well, and, and the thing is like I, like you i mean i i do consider myself a, a city guy now like i i absolutely thrive on sort of like the the vibrant electricity of an environment like yes especially manhattan right um, but it's also the only place i've ever lived where i will you know in the before times i would kind of hit points where i'm like okay this is too much <laughs> gotta get away yeah, yeah. Gotta get right. right um and, and there's there's kind of, 
Yeah, there's nature in a city, right? I mean, people don't always think about that. I mean, I you know, I would feel that even in Boston with the park system and here yeah. in Minneapolis too, you know. I mean, yeah, sometimes you want to get out of the city way out, but other times literally just going into Central Park or wherever you are. Um, one of the lakes here in Minneapolis or in St. Paul, just, you know, wow, it's a different world. Yeah. Um, it's so nice to have both, I think. The... Um, now, were you so? Was it strictly percussion that you were doing musically when already when you came to Gustavus? Well, I, I mean, I had actually started playing piano in fourth grade, uh -huh. okay. um, but basically that that sort of tapered off later in high school as I was realizing like I am doing too many things and I need to start focusing my energies a little more effectively. So yeah, by the time I was at Gustavus, it was just. Um, percussion in the music program it, it, well you know like percussion in the what was then called gustavus band it was playing in the right. orchestra it was playing in the jazz lab band it was playing in percussion ensembles in a sort of jack of all trades there okay now so um maybe this, at this point you can tell us a little bit about what 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 a timpanist is right since we're talking about percussion i mean is it i think of a timpanist rightly or wrongly i think of uh I guess kettle drums. That's exactly but, it. But, but there's more involved, or, or am I wrong about that? Yeah. So, I mean, th there is the job description where um, in most major orchestras and opera companies, you are your own section. Like you train as a percussionist, and then at some point along the way, you specialize on timpani. It's kind of the same way that like you'll play trombone and then somebody specializes on bass trombone or something like that. Um it is a very different job description in a lot of ways than playing in the percussion section. And that's kind of why they get divided out like that. Uh, for anyone that, that can't, you know, imagine or visualize this, if you know, you know, the opening to Richard Strauss, also Sprague's Zarathustra, which is also sure. 2001 Space Odyssey, you know, right. bah, 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 yep. bump, 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 that's timpani, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we as timpanists have this very, foundational role in the orchestra we um we just play more repertoire than the percussion section you know you'll you'll have timpani parts starting you know with with bach and even earlier um and then you know most works after that include a timpani part whereas that's not true for percussion a lot of times percussion you know you start getting that in like the mid to late 1800s um and, you know, percussionists will, will be adding color and rhythmic effects and, you know, bass drum moments and everything. But timpani have this this harmonic role. You know, we, we have this kind of harmonic foundational presence in the orchestra. And one of the really interesting things that I started to realize, you know, doing opera was that even within the timpani community, the role of an orchestral timpanist is – you know, one thing in the role of an opera timpanist is a oh, totally different answer. Please say more. This is literally on my list of questions for you. That exact question. Yeah. Okay. So I wondered about that. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and to be clear, like I didn't really know much of this coming to the Met. Um, there, there are so few opera companies in the world that you just don't get exposed to it. Like as a student, you don't have a chance to, to sub or like freelance in these, opera orchestras and so the reality is that like most people that win a job win an audition with metropolitan opera um are coming into it like pretty cold like they've a lot of people have never played a single opera before on timpani that prevent or it, it presents a very unique challenge because 
um, j- just at a very basic level, th- there's you can imagine like music history, kind of like this tree with a trunk and branches. And, you know, if you, if you have some roots of this tree back in the Middle Ages with like Gregorian chant and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, <laughs> again, all these wonderful things I learned about in, in music history from uh, <laughs> Dr. Pat Casaro back in the day. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, you kind of follow the the trunk of that tree upward and it is for centuries vocal music almost exclusively like there's just not instruments it's just not a part of it yet and and then you know decades go by centuries go by and then and then instrumental music sort of like branches off as a little limb and kind of goes off in its own direction and the thing is that opera very much evolved from this main trunk of the tree like this vocal, the, you know, the, the the voice is part of this tradition. When when you're studying as an instrumentalist, you know, in music school, you sort of assume that your little limb of this tree is everything. That like, oh, there's <laughs> always been instruments, symphonic music, Beethoven, all of this. Well, actually, no. It, it's it's more <laughs> like this this sort of like extra thing that only really emerged in that form in like the early 1700s. Um. But, you know, the, the first opera predates the first symphony by well over 100 years. Huh. I did not know that. What this means is this, this is sort of like a longer winding anecdote, but just in basic like engineering terms, the instruments of timpani that, you know, were in place in northern Europe, specifically Germany, when, you know, folks like Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven were sort of like kicking off that genre. Well, those, those timpani were pretty good for the time you know like you could you could strike the the drum head and it would produce a pitch not not as nice as like the instruments we have now but but it was recognizable and so those composers composed with that in mind like oh okay this is a pitched instrument you go back 120 years and like largely opera this this vocal tradition was an italian tradition and they had really bad timpani i mean they were just kind of garbage (laughs) And it was just kind of this like high and low thud. <laughs> and so many, many of these actual written Italian opera timpani parts just have notated high and low thud. <laughs> it's just like two, two notes that have kind of no bearing on what's going on harmonically. And so your job as a timpanist is you have to go in and, and fundamentally rewrite the part and make it playable on modern instruments. That's really fascinating. I, I knew none of that. That's great. The, um, you know, oh, I, I could keep talking about kettle drums, but more, more, maybe more on that in a second. So you, 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 you graduate from Gustavus, you get this degree, the master's in, in, uh, was it engineering, right? And then you, um, you wind up working for a startup, uh, nanotechnology firm. What is it that, what is it that made you, I mean, I know you're, I gather you're still playing, you know, your, your instruments, you're still involved musically, but what is it that, that made you just say, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. Whatever you said, I'm, I'm not continuing with this company. I'm going to try to make music my full-time career. It was far less binary than that. Okay. It was th- so, so the way this really went was, um, you know, after Gustavus, well, it was really my senior year at Gustavus. I, I was having um, a ton of fun putting together my senior recital. Like, you know, this is this requirement for the degree. And, and I was really, really getting into it. And, you know, I started to wonder, like, is this something I really want to do? 
(laughs) And and it was just sort of this weird little thought at the back of my head. But, But the thing is that, you know, like it had just been this kind of dominant assumption for so long. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to go off and do and do physics. It's very practical. It's more more pragmatic decision. And I mean, almost more poignantly, I guess, it just never occurred to me that I could be a professional musician. Yes. Right? And, and, and this, this gets to one of the big points that I try to incorporate as a teacher now. And in fact, one of the things that's kind of this cornerstone of these online seminars I've been doing since the, the pandemic started. Um, I, I don't want to <laughs> needlessly uh, pitch this, but it's just called for anyone that's interested. It's called the Deliberate Practice Bootcamp. We've been doing this. We make it super affordable. It's pay what you can, and we're donating proceeds to the NAACP Legal Defense oh, Fund. Wow. Um, but but one of the cornerstone ideas of this is that like talent is not really a thing. Um, the 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 term deliberate practice was coined by the you know very famous psychologist researcher Anders Ericsson. And um and I was actually really fortunate to get to collaborate with him and, and work with him before he passed away last summer. And you know, among the insights of his decades of work into kind of what expert performers do and what deliberate practice is, is that the assumption of innate talent is a total lie it's just it's just not, it, there's there's virtually no evidence to support the existence of like genetically based talent rather it's about like smart hard rigorous work over a long long time well in in his book peak which he wrote in in 2016 oh yeah peak, the peak performance stuff yeah yeah you know he he gets into kind of the background of like why do we have this cultural fixation on on talent like why is this such a persistent myth it's a myth but it is like a widely shared yes myth, right you know and well you know you, you like start to pick this apart and right away you start getting right back to some of these ideas from bella habits of the heart american exceptionalism individualism like all of these things to me you know now in my later like you know 20 years after college i start to appreciate how they're more interrelated than ever in this kind of liberal artsy way. But anyway, so yeah, fast, right. you know, rewind to, to, you know, 1995 and, and I'm going to Minnesota orchestra concerts, you know, and I'm, and I'm watching, especially the percussion section, like super keyed into what these guys are doing. Um, they are all guys, by the way, <laughs> this is, this is something I need to acknowledge that, you yes, know, I, well, I, I wanted to ask about that also. So thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, I, among so many other things, this, this past year has been this like, you know, brutal pulling back the curtain on these yeah. arts institutions and systemic racism and misogyny. And, and it's, right. it's horrible, but, but yeah. yeah, so the reality, you know, back in 1995 is that, the percussionists and timpanists of the Minnesota Orchestra were all white men. Yep, that's absolutely what I was seeing. Um, you know, nevertheless, I was I was kind of watching like Peter Kogan playing timpani, Jason Arcus and Kevin Watkins and um, Brian Mount playing percussion. And, you know, I, I put them on this pedestal, right? Like to me, they were just these like gods who I just was assuming were kind of imbued with this natural talent that I that I simply didn't possess. You know, I was like, oh, this is fun. I guess I'm I'm kind of okay at this. But <laughs> but but this default assumption of innate talent made me feel like, well, this is always only gonna ever, you know, be a hobby for me. And so it just didn't even seem realistic as I was graduating from Gustavus that 
something like wow. the Metropolitan Opera would ever even be conceivable in my future. And honestly, the only, you know, it was a gradual series of changes kind of chipping away at that flawed assumption. Um, you know, while I was in my master's degree at UC Santa Barbara, I spent a summer at the Aspen Music Festival. That was one of these kind of inflection points because I got to see what these professional musicians were like sort of in real life day to day. Yes, exactly. Behind the scenes in a way, right? I mean, yeah. all, the work, all the work you don't, yeah, exactly. Right, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. And, and <laughs> when you start to see the process, right, it makes you reassess some of these assumptions. It's like, yes. oh, some of these like, you know, people that I'd been putting on pedestals as these God figures in the performing arts show up to rehearsal in like t-shirt and flip-flops and they make mistakes. Right. You know, and I was like, oh, hold on. <laughs> I make mistakes. I make more of them, but okay, mm -hmm. wait a minute. Like maybe there's a path. I, I could, I, and it was just this like vague connecting point. And so then, you know, you fast forward year by year by year, I, I land in Chicago. I, I work to get into the Civic Orchestra, which is this training orchestra with the Chicago Symphony, um, you know, kind of having a series of these ignition experiences. Uh, and, and then, you know, I, I connect with um, this incredible teacher and mentor of mine, John Tafoya, who is the director of percussion at Indiana University. He was, in fact, the one who recommended this book called Talent is Overrated, came out <laughs> in 2008. And it was it was the first mass market book that was kind of popularizing um, and, and making intelligible the research of Anders Ericsson surrounding okay. yeah. practice. Yeah. This was a this was like probably the most important book I ever read in my life because it it was finally confirming for me that like oh, you know it, it it's it's not a sure thing that you can win an audition self um, like no, <laughs> nobody can promise you that but. There's also nothing saying you can't like right. your potential is not fixed. Like this is really up to you and how you want to do it. And, exactly. and all, you know, if you, if you really want to go after this, what you need to do is apply the same sort of like methodological rigor that you've been putting into your science work in the practice exactly. room. Exactly. I have a mile wide grin on my face because, um, this, I mean, for so many reasons, one, how many students have I, you know, any professor, well, I'm just not good at that. You know, well, writing isn't my thing. Or, you know, and the assumption is somehow you're you're born with this talent. I, I did a recording way back when with uh, Professor Eric Vrooman, who's a uh, creative writing prophet, Gustavus, quite accomplished writer himself. And we had this very same conversation, right? I mean, how much of this is, is work or yeah. deliberate practice, right? And, you know, we could, this is a whole podcast in itself, I think, actually, because, um, you know, to unpack what that, what that's, what that myth is, a, is about. But I think um, it's powerful, as it is in your case, was in your case, to realize that's not the case, right? And one of the reasons I became, I'm convinced that this became a labor historian. Technically, that's what I am. I don't really do that at Gustavus, you're jack of all trades. But anyway, I love absolutely love to this day, which is one reason I'm enjoying speaking with you, hearing about, you know, what people do and how they prepare for what they do, right? Yeah. Whether it's an airline pilot, an actor, or, you know, that th there is all this work, or I like that phrase, deliberate practice that, that goes into what we're seeing 
on the stage or in the classroom or, you know, you name, you name it, you name the venue. So I think, I think that's fantastic. Now you, you had a lot of auditions obviously. Um, but the mother of all auditions was with the Met, I would think. I mean, talk to me a little bit or us, I should say, talk to us a little bit about, um, both what that experience was like and, 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 um, and how you prepared for it. Yeah. I would say one of the things that helped me the most in that was not thinking about it like the mother of all auditions. Oh, sure. Honestly, I mean, I, that, that time frame, like 2007, that, that was, it was a turning point. It was, you know, a series of inflection points along the way led up to this kind of uh, overall um, change in my my larger goals, which was like, oh, I think I, I would I would like to try to become a professional timpanist if I can. But along with that was this, I think, really necessary kind of philosophical realization almost, which is, uh, you know, again, not not just by the numbers that, you know, obviously the performing arts are incredibly competitive, like the the number of people that you know, are in the audition circuit is it's mind boggling, hmm. right? It, it's harder. It's harder than the Olympics. It's harder than getting into Ivy League. So, I mean, it's just, it's just incomparable. You know, we, we routinely get two to 300 resumes for a single position in an orchestra. There's, you know, uh, over a hundred people in preliminary rounds sometimes. I mean, and then, it, you know, eventually winnows down to one person. There are, you know, so, somewhere between seven and ten thousand, you know, music performance degrees granted every year f across all instruments, and this is for generously like two hundred or so positions that open Good up Lord. every year. You know, in in American orchestras, and these these ten thousand people are being poured into the existing pool of anywhere from you know fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand people that are out there doing this. So, I mean, I, it's I can't. I can't over exaggerate the the sort of long odds of anyone doing this. But, you know, in a way, like when I was coming at it from this perspective of being like a scientist by day and sort of comfortable with looking at numbers and, and odds and all of that, I also started to get really interested in like kind of digging under the next level of those numbers. Right. And, and that was that was a couple of things that I ended up thinking about. The first one was like, yeah, I mean, it, it's just insane to think like I absolutely am 100 percent for sure going to do this. Or like if a teacher, it, you know, if, if you're a music student and some teacher tells you like, I promise you'll win a job in an orchestra, <laughs> like run, run the other way. Like nobody can promise you that, right? Like in, in, in the performing arts anywhere, like pe people, I think the best you can do is say like you, you are an incredibly hard, diligent worker. And I think – you know, the, the, the better and the longer you do that, you really raise the odds of this working out for you. But nobody can promise you exactly where you're going to land. That's right. You know, and, and I often think that, you know, the, peop the people that are doing that are, you know, they're lying to you or they're trying to sell you something or, you know, it's just like that's, Agreed. that's not the way the world works. Completely agree. Um, yeah. So, you know, sort of the, the tandem realization with that was, okay, like it is not helpful for me to then focus on that kind of long-term goal as the 
be all and end all validation of my self-worth. I, you know, in, in, in another way to put it is like, I have to be okay with things not working out. Yes. You know, which, which is a weird way to frame it, but, but it also then focused me much more on sort of the craft and the process that was under my control. Yeah. Maybe a and, weird way, but it's a, it's a healthy way and a useful way. Yeah. Well, and, and I also think it, it then, I mean, you, you start to really assess the why of what you're doing. Sure. And this, this gets back to that sort of second big touchstone, I think, about a liberal arts environment and that kind of education and the diversity of ideas and people that you can be exposed to and writers and thinkers and you know, classmates and professors and everything else. Um, you know, I think that there's often this this duality that kind of emerges, even even recently in, in some of the books that have come out. Um you know, again, this this researcher I was collaborating with, Anders Ericsson, he would have these debates with uh, another guy named David Epstein, who wrote the book Range recently. And, and you know, it, it was being set up almost as a it's like this contest between, well, is it a liberal artsy approach or is it a focused conservatory approach? And and I sit here now looking at it. I'm like, no, that's the wrong question. It's mm-hmm. it's yes. And it's both, you know. Like ideally, it is it is something where you kind of get to survey a landscape and, you know, assess your own values and interests and kind of map that across your skills and what you're interested in developing. And then and then you go and then you start to focus more and more on things. Is it let me me ask you this quickly. Is it is it is it the case that most um, most members of orchestras come out of a, a conservatory background? Yes. Okay. So you're you're somewhat unusual in that regard, coming out coming right. from small. Yeah. 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 But it, it is also the case, and and I should just be real about this. It's also the case that a lot of orchestral musicians are really unhappy. <laughs> like the job satisfaction among orchestral players, and especially like opera orchestra players, is um, it, it's just shockingly low. And and I and I honestly think that one of the reasons for that is. Well, I, that, that could be a whole other podcast, right? But, but I mean, I, w- one of the things that that I was looking at then for myself in this kind of um, the the yes and approach of like range and then depth, w- which was understanding like, well, why do I want to be doing this? Do I love the craft just kind of for its own sake, or is this just about like? you know, some sort of public accolades or grabbing that brass ring or like, you know, living up to my parents' expectations of me or, you know, any of these things right. that can be drivers, but ultimately not gratifying. Yes. And and what this turned into then, it was both a question I posed for myself and then a question I have posed to my students since then, which is basically like, yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm willing to work with you. Um but, you know, first, I, I don't care whether you think you're talented. Like, this, this is not a thing. Like, are you willing to do the work? Yes. First of all. But second, and maybe more importantly, like, wherever you're at with this, like, l- look at this long road because it's going to be a long road. Um, imagine yourself in 10 years further down the road from where you are. Often this is you know, music students, the age of 18, 19, 20, something like that. So I was, I'm like, imagine yourself at 30 and whatever it is that you are imagining for your career, whether it's, you know, a, a tenured job in, a, in an orchestra or a touring, you know, chamber musician or, a, you know, 
you have a, a tenure position as a music teacher, a major music school, something like that. It hasn't worked out yet. And my question for you is, will it have been worth it? You know, like all of the work that you've put in, in between in the last 10 years, this, this kind of grueling approach to your craft, would it have been worth it? And that's, I, I think, a really important way to frame it, especially it in a time when this whole field is so outrageously unstable. Right. The same in uh, history and the humanities generally, right? Yeah. Has been for a while. So I will say to students exactly what you're saying. A student who, well, I really want to go to graduate school, you know, but I can't really, I don't know, am I going to get a job? And my, my advice is, unlike some professors who will say, no, you should not go there. No, I will say, go if you're willing to do the work. And exactly what you just said, fast forward. Will you have regretted not going, right? Yes. Will it have been worth it? Um, and I'm thinking of a student who graduated a few years ago. He came to Gustavus to play football. He really wanted to go to uh, graduate school in history. Fine. He went and, you know, he worked his butt off and he got lucky as well. But both things, luck and hard work. And he's now got a nice gig at Carleton for three years. You know, so you just don't know. Right. It's about the forks in the road and, and but also the hard work, the deliberate practice, which is a great, a great phrase. I'm, I'm going to try to get Gustavus to make sure every incoming student hears this podcast. <laughs> I'm not kidding because of what you're saying about, you know, it's so good when a student can hear not just a professor telling them. Right. But someone who's yeah, out right. there out there in the real world. Now, you so, you know, this nothing interests me about you. It relates to the earlier point you were making about um, what it's like to be a timpanist in an, in an opera orchestra versus a, a, you know, just a standard, I could say that, a symphony orchestra. Did, did you did you bring to the position uh, a, a familiarity with opera or, or a love of opera already? It sounds like maybe not. I mean, it was extremely limited. I, I was fortunate that when I was living in Chicago, I got to sub a couple of times with the Madison Symphony in Wisconsin. Okay. And they had an opera series that, you know, they would do like two or three operas a year. So I, by the time I got to the Met, I had played um, Mozart's Cosi Fontuti. I had played Tchaikovsky's Eugene and Yegan. And I think, yeah, uh, Donizetti's Lucia de Lammermoor. That was it. <laughs> so just wow. only, only those three. And you can, you can, you know, you can imagine like the, the scale of staring down a first season of repertoire like that, where you know, the, Met, the Met does anywhere from 24 to 28 operas per season. That's incredible. And, you know, operas are long, right? Like, right. It, is, it is no joke. Uh, you know, your standard opera, three hours is a short opera. Yes. Yeah, so I think I, I think as a little kid, I fell asleep at one during one at Ravinia with, and my, my foot came down hard on the, on the wood floor. <laughs> yeah. I still remember that. <laughs> Well, so one opera is like at least three symphonies worth of material. And so, you know, starting a job at the Met is basically like if you had to jump in and learn, you know, 80 brand new symphonic works from scratch, which is crazy, right? Because most of the time, like if you win a job with the New York Philharmonic or the Minnesota Orchestra, you know, your, your new colleagues can reasonably expect you to have basic familiarity with a lot of the symphonic rep. Just going through school and youth orchestra, sure. you'll have played Brahms symphonies and Beethoven and Mahler, Sibelius, you know, all that good stuff. Not so with the Met. Like trying trying to learn all of that stuff from scratch is just incredibly intimidating. That's amazing. So 
Um, it's also encouraging, though, right? It relates to what you're saying. So you don't, you know, you, someone might think, as I wondered, right? Do you, do you need to have expertise in opera or, or operatic music? And the answer is no. Um, no. That, that, that would be unusual. So um, what's it? What's it like? I mean, let's imagine you're doing a production at the Met. Is it? I mean, are you working on that for months, for weeks? It can't be. I would. I mean, how long? How much practicing goes into that? <laughs> that opening night, you know, of a new yeah. of a new production. It is a long process, um, and I mean, actually, the the moment you started talking about that, I started forecasting forward now because again, we're, we're recording this in in January of 2021, right? And you know, for the Met to do a season, it needs a long runway because even before any of the orchestral musicians or the choristers or the principal singers or or anyone's doing any of that, you've got to get all the sets together. And the props and all of this stuff. And I mean, just teching as anyone who's been in theater, like all of that takes a long time. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's something you can't compress, right? Um, <laughs> there's there's that famous uh, phrase in like tech and engineering that like it takes one woman nine months to, to make a baby, but nine women can't make a baby in, in one month, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of that that basic idea. And um and so like a, a new season, just like putting that on takes a multi-month runway, you know, four, four to five months minimum. Um, and so even even aside from the coronavirus impact, um, I, I just I, it, I would be remiss not to note that the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera locked out our stagehands in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. Yes, that's right. On, on December 9th. I mean, it's yeah. just, just absolutely yeah. egregious, unconscionable, malicious, unimaginable. And. I mean, what what that means is that, like, I am not optimistic for those contracts getting sorted out anytime soon. And that means that we're almost certainly going to miss this runway, which means that I don't know when the season is going to start. Yeah, I mean, there's, no, there's, no, there's, no, there's no opera without those people, right? You can have the musicians. And the, yeah. I mean, yeah. my brother, my brother does, uh, has had a long career in tech in Hollywood, does lighting, and now his son is doing. So I'm, I, I totally understand and appreciate what you're saying about the work involved and not something you just compress or do, do yeah. quickly. The, but um, I mean, in, in, the, yeah. in the normal before times, the way it would happen is that, you know, the, 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 the stage crew generally, and then like all of the different designers and, and props people. And, you know, there's this whole kind of virtual city that goes into that. Um, you know, usually starting in, in May, they begin work on the next season. Um, we in the orchestra will then generally have a couple of months off during the summer just to like let our bodies recover because it is a incredibly yeah, kind of- grueling thing to play sure. during the season. And then we're, um, you know, we're generally back. We we start doing sort of our own individualized um, practice and prep. Uh, you know, August if not earlier. You know, learning these stacks of new music. That's when the uh, our, our fabulous Met Opera chorus. That's when they come back and they start doing their rehearsals because, of course, they have to memorize these long operas <laughs> and and all of these. Um, you know, all all the words, <laughs> and and they have to be. You know, they have to memorize entire operas in Italian and yes. Russian and German and Czech, you know, it's just, it's, it's really extraordinary what they do. It is. Um, our, our first rehearsals then usually begin after Labor Day. We have kind of this three week ramp up process where the orchestra is just, we're rehearsing on our own. And then we start to kind of put the pieces together and, and get all of the large ensembles merging. And then we 
typically will have opening night in late September. It's amazing. How many? So, how many rehearsals would you go through? Do you think for one production? Yeah. So, if you if you kind of zoom in on one production, it really depends. Okay. And what it depends on is like what what kind of rep is it? Is it um, standard stuff like La Boheme stuff that we play regularly all the time? You know, these kind of war horses, right? Or is it uh, you know a little a little more rare, super challenging? You know, super long. Any of these things will impact that. Sure. Um, one of the scariest things is when I, when I was you know basically brand new in the orchestra, and I had to come in and play you know perform something like La Boheme with virtually no rehearsal, <laughs> right? And 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 the thing is, like for the larger opera company. They they sort of make this valid assumption, which is like, well, no, we do this all the time. Everyone knows this. We can we can knock this out with like one dress rehearsal and that's it, <laughs> you know, and 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 that works most of the time. It just neglects like a couple of the people on the margins who are like, yeah, we both me. I haven't done this yet. Um, well, add to it the fact that like the Met, the Met Orchestra is essentially a double orchestra. Because we do seven shows a week, you know, we, we basically perform almost twice as much as any standard symphonic orchestra. Right. Yes. So we have usually two principals in each position, and what that meant is that in that particular instance, um, my co-principal was playing the rehearsal and playing, you know, the first six performances or so of this opera, and then I had to take over mid-run, <laughs> and so I just, you know, basically had to show up with zero rehearsal and and play this opera that you know folks in that opera orchestra had been playing for decades i had to sound like i knew what i was doing when in fact i was just totally trying to figure it out as i went that's awesome and that's, that's terrifying yeah these are, it's terrifying and i'm sorry for you you got but i these are the sort of tidbits or stories i love that uh, sitting in the unless maybe maybe someone who knows the music and is an expert at how a timpanist that particular piece should sound. I mean, I wouldn't know. I would just be, you know, wow, he's amazing. You know, not, not knowing what you're thinking, what you've been through. What about, do you have, as you're, as you're playing, I've always wondered about this, you know, when I'm at the theater, musical theater, and um, I think I've only been to a couple of operas. One here, uh, uh, Nixon in China, which was just fabulous. Oh, sure. John uh, Adams, but, yeah. But when, yeah. When you're, when you're playing, are you, um, I mean, what's going through your mind? Are you just so focused on the music and what's coming next? Are you, are you able to actually, sort of feel, wow, this is incredible if it is, right, a, a, a singer or, or what's it like? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great question. And and again, that that depends. And it, it almost points to the sort of other side of that coin, which is uh, for something like La Boheme, it was like this terrifying immersion with no preparation. With something else, though, like something we did more recently, um, for instance, oh boy, again, I, the, the the time scale of before times is evading me. But it was sometime in the last few years where we did uh, Wagner's opera Parsifal with our new music director, Yannick Nezessigan. Mm -hmm. And Parsifal is this just in, incredible work of kind of omni art. This, the, the Wagnerian term for this was Gesamtkunstwerk, but it was, it was something he uniquely kind of brought to the opera repertoire, which was this total artwork that involved poetry and sets and myth and music and singing and just kind of all of it wrapped together. Parsifal is also six hours long. 
Like, no <laughs> joke. I, yeah. And so the preparation pro- process for this is utterly different. Um, <laughs> for something like that, we I, I think we had like at least nine rehearsals, maybe 10. But also my personal preparation process is a whole lot different. Um, you know, a, a lot of what I'm doing there is uh, – I I almost call it like life engineering because huh. the 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 physical and mental especially demands of being able to do a 6 hour performance at at the artistic level of the Metropolitan Opera is just unlike anything else I've ever had to do in my life. Sure, you have and, to be an athlete, almost like an athlete I would imagine. Oh, 100%. And and you really have to kind of design your life around enabling that, which is, you know, the night I would have one of those performances that begins at 6 p.m. and ends, you know, shortly before midnight. Um, I'm not doing a lot else that day. You know, I'm not I'm not doing things that are going to be taxing or straining or mentally demanding. I'm, you know, really kind of trying to conserve my energy. And then even within the performance, like you're asking about, like what's going through my mind? Well, it it, it depends because as a sort of survival skill, part of my preparation has involved going through and like learning really, really, really thoroughly the parts where I'm playing and where I'm integrated and and like, you know, an important part of the ensemble, especially any solo moments, transitions, big climaxes, right? I mean, I often say that like operatic timpani are sort of the agents of peak drama. Um, <laughs> somebody, somebody dies, somebody says, I love you. Like, you know, it's, it's always timpani are going to be yeah, involved yeah, in that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then there's all of these other times, right? A certain a certain character will have an aria that's six or seven minutes long, and it's just, you know, strings and woodwind solo. And the rest of us are chilling out for six or seven minutes. Yeah. Well, in that time, so I have this all like demarcated in my my paper part, kind of indicating like, okay, right, you're playing for the second. Okay, it ends here. Your next entrance is in seven minutes. Power down. Right. So it's yeah. kind of like I'll like lower my chair and I'll kind of sit back and I'll just kind of like zone out. Huh. And and I, you know, I then have all of the oral cues, you know, for, for anything before my next entrance, I have like very thoroughly memorized what all those things sound like. So it's almost like a little alarm clock. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not like actually sleeping. I'm just sort of right. like resting in, in, in a sort of like light hibernation thing because i'm like i gotta go another five and a half hours for this (laughs) that's awesome that's so interesting it's fantastic i love it um do you have favorite uh operas or arias oh sure but i mean i'm gonna say the 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 frustrating thing i always hear my colleagues say which is like yeah that's whatever i'm playing at the time (laughs) it's like i I think of certain things and it's like yeah Yeah. i mean parsifal was an absolute highlight that was that was a real that was a very special experience um you know, both Strauss, Electra, and Salome, those operas are, are mm. incredible. And they have just these incredibly dynamic and inventive timpani parts. Um, but then, I mean, there's a certain, certain ways that like Verdi composed and, and especially the way he interpreted Shakespeare. So you've got like, you know, Falstaff or Italo or some of these operas are just really incredible. And, they, well, and they're incredible, honestly, in these ways that I think, you know, kind of relate back to almost where we started with some of this conversation, which is like this moment we're living through, you know, and and I have to tell you, Greg, like th- there have been times in the last three or four years where 
the drama happening on stage is this like meta commentary on what's happening in the world. I can only, I'm laughing. I can only imagine. Yes. Well, look, I mean, it might, it might be, um, you know, James Levine conducting Marriage of Figaro, which is Mozart's (laughs) opera about the problems of powerful men with impunity for their crimes. When we were rehearsing, I, I was in the pit for the very final rehearsal that Placido Domingo ever sung at the Met as all of those allegations of you know, sexual harassment were pouring out from, from dozens and dozens of women. He was singing the role of Macbeth. <laughs> and it, like literally one of the final scenes he rehearsed before he got cut from the production was when in the scene, he tumbles off of this chair and the crown falls from his head onto the stage. Oh, yeah. I mean, OK. There, there's. I was you, like, guys, this is a little on the nose. Right. <laughs> you, can't make, you can't make this stuff up. You can't script you can't. it. I, I was wondering how we were going to get to James Levine and, and, and Domingo because they're, they're both gone, right, um, in, in, in Scandal. And, but you mentioned the new, the new um, uh, is it Sagan? Is that his name? Yes, Johnny Yeah. And he tells me just briefly, he's young. He's young. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, he and I are about the same age. I mean, I think. Okay. I think where, where is he from? Where, where is he before? Montreal originally. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, no, he, he's he's just a, an, an absolutely <laughs> tremendous leader for the institution, both you know artistically and and you know on all of the other oh, kind of management side of good. of his duties. Um, it's good. just it's it's again it's like it is such a unmitigated tragedy right now of what's happening yeah. with the institution it yeah, it because is. i really there were there were so many ways in which i felt like you know back back in january february i can i can remember distinctly thinking like all right maybe maybe we're ready to turn the page now on these like really dark chapters in the history of the metropolitan opera we've got we've got this incredible new leader we're making music at this really high level and then Bam! This yeah. virus comes in and just like brings the institution to its knees. Yeah, you're making me think there'll be an opera about this some at some point, maybe the, about the Met. Who knows? Oh, um, I think so. Well, and and I, you know, in this in this bigger way, it's just it's it's had me think back about like the the, the pulling back of that curtain, right? I yes. I had this vision of the Met when I was, you know, uh. uh a, a young aspiring musician and and how it you know kind of represents the pinnacle of artistic achievement and, and all of this stuff and it's it is true but there's also a lot of darkness in there yes exactly. and it relates back to like when you were when you were asking about my experience growing up in chaska you know i mean like like there's there's so much i miss about minnesota and and you know kind of my, what, what i still consider to be my home and yet you know my 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 parents um, have have recently become much more like politically active and engaged and you know organizing on on campaigns, and um, you know they were they were working on this uh, campaign for a, a state senate race in their district, and um, you know their their candidate, the Democrat, just got absolutely wiped out in 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 this fall election, and I've had to really contend with that like. The place I grew up, I don't know quite what it was like at the time, but I, I kind of don't want to lie to myself about this. I mean, it, it is it is now just by the numbers, purple generously, if not like pretty red. 
Yeah. And yeah. Like a lot of my, you know, like my parents would go around knocking door to door in the neighborhood I grew up in right. and be getting, their, you know, the door slammed in their faces because they were campaigning for an African-American candidate. Yeah, exactly. I, I knew that's where you were going. I felt it. And yeah, absolutely. Because I was going to raise George Floyd, right? There's the curtain again for a lot of Minnesotans. Uh, well, that's not Minnesota. That's not who we are. Well, yeah, it, yeah, is. it is. It right? is. Right? It's like 100% country. who we are. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that's just to acknowledge the, the reality. It's not to not God. to denounce the state or denounce the country. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's all true. Um, you know, I could keep going and I wish you could have a kettle drum and do some playing for us. But um, can you can you give us a your sort of elevator pitch for Gustavus? I know you've touched on this already. That's where we'll end. Yeah, well, you know, to, to the extent that, you know, OK, let me I'll frame it this way. You asked me about what what, you know, was different about my preparation for the mat. And I was saying I didn't view it as like the mother of all auditions. In fact, it was just kind of one part of the process along the line. And and it was part of this larger kind of philosophical reorientation I had as I was approaching auditioning and thinking about like, you, you know, again, it's about doing the work. It's about will it have been gratifying after 10 years, focusing on the process, not the product. And 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 kind of the way that like all of these different feedback loops are built into that and that's part of this evolving improvement process and and that that is you know this engine of your craft and and refining that and i was i was just thinking about it the other day because i just read um this this you know really insightful column by ezra klein where he was talking about like democracy democracy itself depends on feedback loops and right now the feedback loop of democracy is is broken. We've just had you know tens of millions of people unmoored from reality, and I think I think about all of these things, and I think about like the value that uh, you know my time at Gustavus got me to be able to like contend with this era, and just try to wrap my head around these big ideas and try to survive through all of this colossal instability, and and you know recognizing that my process as a tympanist has these resonances with the entire design of American democracy and that it's it ultimately most effective and useful to focus your energies on the process under your control and you know recognize that it's a constant evolution right where there's there's no destination we get to when we're done you're you know that's right it's 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 not it's not seeking perfect it's seeking more perfect. That's exactly right. I mean, that's so true. That's what I tell students who are activists, whether they're conservative. No, the point is, and I once had a professor say this, and it's stuck with me. I'm one of my graduate school professors. It's the process, right? Yeah. That's what, that's what it's, sure, you want, you, you ideally get to the goal. I mean, women's suffrage did happen, the Civil Rights yeah. Act. But, but nonetheless, um, that can take a long time. That can take more than one lifetime to get there. So I think that's a profound and powerful uh, lesson. Um, wow. I want to listen to you bang on some kettle drums, but I have to, I'll, have to, I'll have to do that online. Um, this has been just awesome. Thank you so much for your time and all the insights. And uh, gosh, one day when you're back in New York and Kate and I are there, we will get together for sure. Uh, it be fun to see you in person. Um, sooner than later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and listen, in all seriousness, fingers crossed for the arts as a whole, but especially for uh, the Met and, and, and your position there. Um, good luck in Seoul. Stay safe and uh, take good care. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Bye bye. 
Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College.